0: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I am your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. Technically, it was the 30th round of the Premier League season, but with the FA Cup quarterfinals taking place this weekend, England's top division was kind of split in half between two competitions. We're going to start with discussion of the FA Cup, and to do that, I have my co-hosts here with me in London, Lawrence McKenna, and in Indiana, Nipun Chopra. Uh, Guys, we have to jump right into it with the most...
0: Wait, why does he get a a city, and why do I get the state?
1: I may be underestimating people's geographic knowledge. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good question. I, I should say at the beginning here, too, guys. You can kind of sense this. My throat is kind of going. So a lot of the show is going to be handing it off to you guys, which will probably make this our best show of the season. Oh, come on! Let's start with Great. Arsenal, guys. Let's start with Arsenal, uh, Lawrence. It's been the biggest topic on the show all year. Unfortunately, we're kind of back where we normally are each March with Arsenal, only this time, as opposed to the last two years, we're talking about Arsenal bowing out of the FA Cup. Two early second-half goals from Watford at the Emirates led the Hornets to a 2-1 victory and a place in the semifinals. Just your reaction to the game, Lawrence. Uh, Arsenal, obviously a huge opportunity in this tournament to make history, especially with a lot of other big teams bowing out, but now they're out at the round of eight.
2: Yeah, unusually so, um, considering their run over the last couple of seasons. Uh, and also just their reputation in the FA Cup in general. You know what? Arsenal's structure in the side, there's very little structure to this team right now. And I think I really let them down because they played a team with a lot of structure.
1: Hmm. And that, that is interesting, and I think that, that dovetails with some of my thoughts. I, I at least look at the selection that Arsene Wenger has made, the selections Arsene Wenger has made over the last few games, all pretty much disappointing results. And, well, with the exception of Hull. Um, the Hull victory obviously got them to this point. But Arsenal has been playing their first-choice squads. People bemoan their injuries, but they're, they are relatively healthy at this point. They are missing people like Santi Casola, but most teams are missing one or two key players at this point. The the sides that Wenger can put out right now are pretty strong. It just seems like between the players and the manager, there's something that's not clicking right now, and they're performing far below their potential.
0: I think so, too. I mean, I think the one player I would say that is a must fit in that team that is a big miss is Koscielny. I think beyond that, the, the players that they're missing are probably players that uh, they they have enough depth to cover. So so someone like Ox, you know, Campbell walks right into that team and there's probably fairly uh, similar characteristics for those players. So they don't miss him as much. But Koscielny, I think, has been a miss. Uh, Gabriel at center back has not had that same effect that that Koscielny has. And I think Mertesacker struggles without Koscielny, and that was true today, Richard, uh, Richard and Lawrence, if you guys were watching the game. Multiple times, I thought Igalo got past wow. Mur- You, Of course, Richard, you don't watch soccer anyway. I don't watch football. Yeah, <laughs> no, you don't watch soccer. Uh, <laughs> Igalo just blew past Mertesacker multiple times, uh, and Mertesacker, you can argue, was culpable for that first goal also. So, yeah, I definitely see your point there. Mm.
1: Amongst other players that are out, Petr Cech missed his third straight game also. Uh, but Lawrence... Napoon mentioned it, Odia Agalu having a pretty big effect in this game, uh, troubling that central defensive partnership between Pirameta Saka and Gabriel. What I think is interesting about that is that in the last few shows, we had been talking about how teams seem to have figured out Watford, that Odia Nogalu has had a much more limited effect over the last couple months than his yeah. uh, really stellar effect in the first half of the season. But then they go to the Emirates in this one, and it just... It seems like he was his old early season self. Maybe this comes back down to what you've mentioned on the show before the, the fact that Arsene Wenger very rarely changes his team to account for the other team, instead relying on the quality in his side and their system to overcome. Maybe maybe that was part of the reason why they're bowed, they bowed out today.
2: But then what I would consider is uh, you know as much as you say that Arsene Wenger d- doesn't change his side based on based on the team, at least Mm -hmm. he knows how other sides are going to react to that, for instance. So he knows that other sides may set out to frustrate uh, or sort of stifle what Arsenal want to do. So surely there is a thought process in there, or surely there is something that he believes will unlock the other team. And I think he, in his post-match press conference, he sort of said it was, uh, he, he was talking about how unusual the game was, how he expected to win based on this performance and I know there almost seem, there does seem to be almost a sort of well, we, what, I think he's confused. And every season, Arsenal fans get very frustrated with that. They say, you know, why are you so confused? It seems very clear to some people mm. uh, why they're not winning. And I, even the players at this point look frustrated as well. You know, Ozil was going in with um, very, a very weird tackle and kind of pushed someone over almost, and it, it looked very strange. Um, not for an Arsenal team because actually what what we do see about the Invincibles of a few years ago is there was quite a bit of anger in that team. You remember the outbursts on quite a few people. They were not particularly um, reserved team, if that's how I can put it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think maybe the press did Wenger a lot of favours in that time and maybe didn't do Arsenal fans so many favours because they didn't analyse it in the way that maybe they were supposed to. That team had a lot of bullies in the side mm-hmm. and this Arsenal team has no bullies to get them back into games when when they need to. They They kind of have that Swagger, but you know if that's kicked out of them, or you, they, they come up against someone who almost has a, I don't know, is there another word for almost calling a team too honest, like mm-hmm. uh, Watford are? Then you, you know you you see that almost disintegrate because it it, it takes away from the narrative. That I think Arsenal will write for themselves. Hmm.
1: You know, you mentioned. Arsen Wenger's reactions, and I think they fall into the same reactions that we're used to seeing from Arsene Wenger. He kind of looks like a, seems like a bewildered professor after these type of results, the type of person that drew something up perfectly on the chalkboard and then his students didn't execute the experiment very well. And Nippuna, what happens after that that confuses me is that there's no urgency ever with Arsenal. There's mm. never a tendency to look at a game and say, okay, well, what didn't we do or What do we maybe have wrong? Where is our theory breaking down? Where do we need to adjust? And instead they chalk it up to circumstance or just a bad day. And, uh, which isn't the worst analysis, I think, given you can, there's always a danger of looking too much into single results. But year after year, we see Arsenal at this time of year or in the face of other big challenges, wane, cower a little bit, basically uh, disappoint. And there's never that point of introspection within Arsenal to kind of say, you know, what's happened over the last decade where teams that were capable of winning titles in the Premier League are now not competing. And not only not competing, they're shrinking away from these challenges. I just never sense that. I never sense that level of introspection from Arsenal. If there's any reason why Arsenal should consider moving on, it's probably that inability to learn from what has happened over the last 10 years.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a factor of history keeps on there's a burden of history on Arsenal now and there's there's as Lawrence was pointing out the the Invincibles team with those brilliant um, players that could win in multiple ways they, they could outpass you they could you know shoot from distance they could out tackle you with Vieira and Petit and all these players who who were strong in the air as as good in the air as they were with their feet since then uh, I, I think hi- history will suggest that the turn the that Wenger took in around the two thousand four two thousand five season with introducing players of small stature, uh, Fabregas, Nazri, etc. Has really come back to haunt Arsenal in the long term because you can make the argument that at that time had Wenger invested correctly and rightly and in and introduced more Premier League caliber. Not not that Nazri and Fabregas are bad players, of course not, but players that can do multiple jobs and. Play in a physical way, perhaps Arsenal would have gone on to have a um, you know, I don't know much success in the mid two thousands. But it hasn't worked out that way. And and the introspection thing, I think it, I think it's a good point. I don't know where Ar- Arsenal goes from here because I have to hold my hand up. I genuinely believed that Arsenal had turned the corner this season, and they have not. <laughs> Very good. Um, he is. Um, he, Wenger is clearly reflective or
2: introspective in some ways, though, because, or at least. Uh, reflexive because his substitutions were very good. And it was a triple substitution, which, you know, is actually quite unusual for a manager to make. I think he, at least two of the substitutions were Alexis Sanchez and Walcott, Right. Uh, was, yeah. it, uh, was it well, was it Welbeck was the other one. Uh, yeah. Welbeck was the other one. Right. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, when he brought those guys on, I thought they were, they, they, they were effective in the sense that, you know, what he, you would have assumed he brought them on to do worked apart from the lack of goals essentially you know enough goals at least um so it's not like you know that was terrible and they did have a miss like like we've already mentioned but what i would say Richard, i was listening to another podcast the other day called what's the technology or the verge and mm. they were talking about um and i found this fascinating i wonder if you can apply the same to football they were analyzing the new galaxy s7 from samsung a great phone is what most people are saying it looks amazing and that, that we've not dropped it into the podcast <laughs> deliberately sorry chris um, and they were saying uh imagine now that design team of people and think about the decisions they had to do to get mm-hmm. there and if you were sitting here criticizing the phone to them what would they be saying to you mm-hmm. and i think the same with Wenger. i think if he's listening to this podcast there's so often that you finish sentence and Nipun finish sentence, I finish sentence. I imagine him going, no, 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 you don't get what I'm trying to do here. Hmm. And you almost get an element of the misunderstood about Wenger. Because, and, and I feel the same about his Arsenal sides. And it, it frustrates me because I'd love to see him succeed. There's nothing that I sort of have against Arsenal that, you know, it, it's not right. like they're particularly dislikable or, you know, any of those things. It They literally play beautiful football and they have a very sort of clear vision when it works. Hmm. But I imagine him sitting there and sort of going, no, 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 you, you're completely misinterpreting what I'm trying to do here. And it's just that you guys don't get it. So where's the synergy between the analysis and and seeing what he does and tries to do and the end goal?
1: I don't know. I I, I can see it's I can see it's helpful to take a step back. And look at things from that point of view, because maybe at this point, having discussed Arsenal for so many years, we're so far down the rabbit hole that we're lacking some kind of context. But I also feel that we've spent a lot of time on this show this year, particularly in the manager's show where we ranked all the managers in the Premier League, really trying to understand Wenger and to put his uh, decisions and his performances into context. And Arson Wenger ranked, I believe he was number one on the list. Uh, yeah, he as, was. so I think there is a reverence for what Wenger is doing, but I think also the way that the Premier League has evolved, the way that football in England has evolved, I think it's very fair to look at Arsenal and start judging them by bottom lines. Not one particular bottom line. Mm-hmm. I don't think bowing out of the FA Cup would be something to condemn Arsene Banger for. But the lack mm-hmm. of, the lack of, will the inability to compete for titles, their perpetual third and fourth place finishes, <laughs> and then this, This inability to win the big games. Arsenal has beaten big clubs in the regular season before. We've seen, we've seen that over the last few years. Uh, Most notably against City last January was a very big win. But it always seems like when the, when the competition plus context, when the stakes are the highest, Arsenal can't push themselves over the line. And at some point, when you see the talent levels that they have compared to everybody around them, you have to ask whether that's something endemic to how the team is prepared each week. And no, Nipun, we don't get to see how the sausage is made, but we can at least taste the sausage at the end and
0: say, "This, this just isn't good. I think that that's accurate in the sense that there is something more than the personnel, because I believe, firmly believe that this Arsenal team, in terms of personnel, is the best team in the league in terms of quality of players I, and that convinces me more and more and more with each passing week uh, since the middle of February and now into March that the problem lies with the mentality at the club and because of that fact and there's only one person really that can change the mentality at a club and that's the manager unless you have a, a really really strong captain like a Vieira realistically you rely on your manager to you, you pick up your cues in terms of what the manager thinking so because of that i think at some point even though i rate him so highly at some point if arsenal need to take this next step they seriously need to consider a different manager because the status quo is just been, it's just much of the same i mean so many people wrote them off at, uh, in january saying the same things that they'll fall apart in february and march and it's coming true and it's, it's embarrassing because of the quality of players that they have
1: We haven't talked about Watford at all, and I'm looking forward to doing that. But first, I want Mm. to take some time to talk to you about SeatGeek. Have you Mm. ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online? I got to admit, it happens to me all the time. Most sites make it complicated and then try to sneak in huge fees at checkout. And that's why you need to try SeatGeek. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. Download an app, write to your phone, a free app, have access to everything SeatGeek offers. Let me give you an example. Just the other day, I was looking for Trailblazer tickets here in Portland, and I, with the SeatGeek ad in mind, took a moment to check out some of the competition at StubHub. I went, looked for two tickets, saw that after the fees were added, $14 in fees were added, it was up to $42 for my tickets. I went and looked for those same tickets on on SeatGeek. the price was clear from the get-go. I knew what I was getting, and I ended up buying through SeatGeek for a cheaper price, a price that they told me from the moment that I signed on to the application. I like Robin Hood. exactly. SeatGeek has taken mm. all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. It pulls all the tickets available on other sites into one place, so you save time and you never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming events, and SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better... Every ticket on SeatGeek is a Given a grade based on its value, you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's maps to see the view from your seat. And best of all, SeatGeek is always honest. And like I mentioned, that really helped me buying tickets recently. The price you see at the beginning is the price that you're going to pay at the end. You're not going to have this middle step where a series of fees are added onto it. Now, here is where SeatGeek is going the extra mile for World Soccer Talk podcast listeners. You can basically... Possibly go to an event in your area for free because if you buy through SeatGeek with your first purchase, you will get a $20 rebate off of your tickets. To get that $20 rebate, download the free SeatGeek app. Go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code WSTPOD. Seek Geek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. You, know, you hear ads all the time for products. This one, it's worth a try. That $20 rebate is really going to show you what Seek Geek has to offer. For me, that could be a free trailblazer game for you. It could be a free event in your area too. Download the Seakeek app today and enter the code WSTPOD to get your $20 rebate off your first purchase. Gentlemen, we talked almost the first segment exclusively about Arsenal. It is the biggest story in England right now. Their fade, but also the two-time defending champions exiting the cup on Sunday. But let's talk about Watford. Kike Sanchez-Flores called this the best win of his career. His career highlight, defeating Arsenal at the Emirates in the round of eight. Got to give them a lot of credit for executing this. Even a
0: weakened Arsenal is a formidable task, Nipun. And Watford, they pulled it off. They did. And, you know, I thought, I, I worried for them at the start because even as I said, Igalo got past Sacker, He could not find Troy Deeney with, with a good pass. And I kept thinking to myself that, uh, so this this was, he'd only scored one goal in all of 2016 coming into this game, Igalo had. And I kept thinking to myself, if Arsenal are going to, uh, if Watford need, to get anything out of this game. They need Igalo to either find that final ball or get a lucky goal uh, because it looked like every time they broke, they had the beating of him, uh, they had the beating of Arsenal defense, but not enough of a final ball. So that first goal goes in and I think it really settled Igalo. And after that, uh, to me, even though though Welbeck came back and scored that goal, it looked fairly comfortable for Watford. And that is a huge, 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 uh, uh, you know, something that Watford fans and... Kike Sanchez-Flores will be very proud of.
1: And and they should be, too. Uh, you mentioned Odia Nogalu had a, had a goal, had only one goal in the last couple of months. Uh, Adeline Guedara with a really nice goal incredible, to double Incredible,
0: incredible strike. Yeah. Right,
1: and they were up to nothing going into the last uh, 15 or 20 minutes of this game. Lawrence, we talked about Arsene Wenger not being able to get his team to the level they need to in this game. So the flip side of that coin is Kike Sanchez-Flores. He has to deserve a lot of credit for this because... Even on the the very surfaces of this, you have to prepare your team mentally to be confident enough to go up against one of the most talented teams in the league on the road in a competition that they've won the last two years and convince them they can win that game. And obviously Watford had that belief. Yeah, exactly. Uh, although I, I think what it's what it, it almost
2: seems as if it's less about belief with Watford and more just about the idea that actually they think the system will work. So maybe it's belief in the system for them. Um, I think they've got a lot of great players on that side and also I think some of their substitutions um, seem very shrewd You know, they realised the game was opening up and they brought on someone like Anya and I think that that, uh, you know, w- basically I think when there's a synergy between what the boss is doing and what the players are doing there's there's probably comparisons we can draw there with Arsenal mm. um, then you, you see a team functioning at a higher level than just what you'd imagine the, the sum of Oxford's parts are. Again, I still worry Uh, And, you know, about the long term for Watford and, you know, if they're continually deconstructing and constructing sides, whether that can continue over season after season after season, Mm. Um, you know, especially if they're looking to profit off some players. I'm not saying necessarily the ownership are. I do think there are times where we see that.
1: No, I think it's fair to say they're looking to profit off players, but uh, what clubs aren't these these days? Maybe Watford has a very atypical model with the Ponzu consortium <laughs> and moving players around between Granada and Udinese, but uh, that's just kind of part of the game, right now, isn't it, Lawrence?
2: Uh yeah. yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Very literally, it's part of the game.
1: Um. <laughs> although, would you
2: do you think you know if if they get if they get a ten million offer for someone like Tro- Dini or Regalo, is it worth that? You know, or do they go do you know do they literally only go for a big uh, sale on those guys?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess, I guess that's something to consider as they go through. Like, for some of the other players in their squad, you would definitely think that they would, uh, turn over players like that. But for other ones that are going to be so crucial to keeping the club in the Premier League and, uh, the premium that we see on keeping teams in the first division in England right now with the television contracts, you're right. Maybe they'll hold on to some of those players. Uh, the exciting thing for me about Watford is that they're part of a group of teams right now in the semifinals that really could uh, carve a very memorable victory for their clubs. Uh, on Friday, we saw Crystal Palace at the Majeski score two late goals, get past Reading, and Everton 2-0 on Saturday beat Chelsea. An FA Cup victory for either of those sides would be huge. We'll talk about those games in a moment. Napoon, first, I want to talk about the other Sunday game, Manchester United versus West Ham. Uh, West Do we H-
0: have to? I yeah, have unfortunately. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, go, go ahead and tell us your thoughts after that one. Uh, now Manchester United faces a replay at Upton Park, and uh, that's not a match that they're going to be favored to win. This was their opportunity to make it to the yeah. semifinals of a cup competition, a cup competition that's very open for a team of their talent level. Uh, but with Manchester United, talent level doesn't really really matter they haven't been performing to their talent level all year.
0: Yeah, it's been a crazy week for Man United. Uh I think the I think the whole mood around the club was uh sorry about that my dog is whining in the background. Uh the whole mood around the club was definitely much lower after that loss to Liverpool. Uh not just the fact that they lost to Liverpool, but the way they lost to Liverpool. Mm. So this game uh, on paper gave us a chance. How would you, how would you put into words the way that they lost to Liverpool? (laughs) Uh, What happened was Liverpool scored two more goals than United did. Hmm. How would you put into word your Um, emotions as this transpired? I was, uh, what's the opposite? What's that word? Uh, hang on. It's a long word. I was sad.
1: (laughs) <laughs> it was really, it was a really demoralizing performance. Yeah, um,
2: yeah. I mean, I'm so, going to Old Trafford on Thursday, and I'm really hoping that none of this comes back
0: to bite me. Yeah, are you, are, are you just going for the banter? Right? <laughs> um, well, I'm also going for the free food, oh. but yes, also the banter. Yes. Uh, well, hopefully it's banter and not some of the sickening things that some Man United supporters were yelling during the game, which is mm. just shameful.
1: Yeah. To but dip, yeah, come, to dip into Europa League for a second, you, you know, we watched that early yeah. game where Spurs were. Utterly dominated by Dortmund in a, in a way that I think a uh, few of us, I think one of us on, of the three of us, did actually think that Dortmund was much better than Spurs, Lawrence. Um, but Spur, Spurs just look like, they look like, I don't know, like a um, an Austrian team facing a Spanish team in that game. It's just different levels entirely and they just look surprised at times like it was sort of like wait
2: this is how good teams are supposed to be they
1: just looked really inexperienced right they just kind of look like whoa this is a completely different level we're gonna have to get used to this in the future and unfortunately they're pretty much out of that tie losing three nothing in Germany but then the second game I was expecting something a little bit more competitive in and I again I guess this goes back to Manchester United I shouldn't necessarily expect hugely competitive games when this team can go out and just be flat at any moment
0: yeah, I was talking about this with a friend of mine who's who a Liverpool supporter and we were discussing about how things are different. Uh, the, the in Liverpool and Man United go through these, for the last three or four seasons have been going through the, each season in opposition. So every time Man United is good, Liverpool is struggling. When Liverpool is good, Man United is struggling and that seems to be happening now not only throughout this season but, but game to game. And it's really strange the, the coincidence of that. But the point is i'd like to make here uh, in terms of united's performance midweek is that it kind of comes back i know this is so boring now but it comes back to louis van hall and some of his decisions he made uh midweek dropping some of the players that he shouldn't have dropped playing some of the players he shouldn't have played uh, and rotating players that were in form in terms of rashford into positions that they weren't doing well in and you have to wonder some of the what his thought process is in that sense and even jumping ahead to today's game, he, he starts the game with Blint at left back and Rojo at center back. And I was just wondering what the thought process with that was, because you have Blint, he's kind of come into the center back role, he's doing well, is doing well at left back, and I know that Andy, Andy Carroll is a, uh, is frightening in the air, but you have Smalling to deal with that. So some of the decisions, it, it almost feels to me, and I want to hear if you guys think about this it almost feels to me that louis van hall thinks of his players as these robots that he can literally move them around these pieces all over the place on the chessboard and they will do exactly what he wants them to do and it, football just doesn't work that way and maybe i'm just put maybe i'm over analyzing what he's doing but i feel that that's how he analyzes the games is that regardless of what player is placed in whatever position if they follow his tactical instruction it'll work great and it'll work perfectly not being cognizant of the fact that not every player can follow his tactical instruction all the time. Rhetorical, right? <laughs> no, Lawrence, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Good question. Um, okay, let's put it this way. Uh, Holland and the way that they, or the Netherlands and the way they develop football, n- expects players to be of a certain tactical standard. Right. We've spoken about Spurs being surprised by the way that uh, Dortmund played. I would maybe also speak about the way that Manchester United might be surprised about the way that Louis van Gaal wants them to play. And at times I feel sorry for both sides of that relationship because there are times where I think, you know what, there are certain players within that United team who are not equipped to deal with Lou Van Gaal. and at the same time, I feel sorry for Lou Van Gaal because I think you've been equipped with players who aren't ready to deal with you. And I think there are other people making bigger strides to make themselves um, more amenable and more adaptable to the modern manager. And I don't think that Manchester United made enough strides as an institution to make themselves Amenable to the modern managerial game whilst they're very good on a commercial level and uh, on other levels I think there's there are still problems structurally within the club Um, it doesn't take away from some some of the talent they've got. I mean, you know, if you'll go to any of the fan channels They'll tell you endlessly about Rashford and uh, you know uh, Lingard and Pereira and uh, any of the young guys, but uh, I'm sure this goes on by the way. Um, and they do have some very good young talent. But the problem is that they currently don't have much of a youth setup. And that's not only at United, but also in comparison to other sides who seem to be building. And so the question now for United is, where do they go with that? Do hmm. they choose to go with Mourinho and get themselves some short-term stability and give them some time to s- essentially give themselves time to search Yes. Um, for a manager who will give them a long-term? Yes. Uh, and But also at the same time, I think what we're also forgetting, I think a, a real problem with And Mourinho seems fairly nailed on at this point. Um, What I think a real problem is that people don't acknowledge is that actually Mourinho does set clubs up for the long term. It's just that he doesn't set them up for the long term with him there. Hmm. So this, this Chelsea team that essentially he built and he built the basis for he built a character into that side that gave them a lot of very admirable qualities as well as awful Mourinho qualities. Absolutely. And I think he could probably do very similar with a United team. There are players and figures within him that you'd imagine will react well to what Mourinho does, as well as some that will react badly. And what you don't want is to see those Mourinho scars. So I think United need to be careful and manage this relationship well. And I imagine that Mourinho will be also... um uh, aware of that and how he wants to set those things up and, and how he will be remembered at that club
1: mm-hmm. and i imagine there are a lot of west ham fans right now screaming at their dashboards <laughs> or their phones that we're not talking about them uh the one thing i want to talk about with west ham because we're going to have opportunities to talk about west ham a lot going forward them being in the chase for the fourth champions league spot them with a chance to get into the fa cup semi-finals the one thing i want to talk about is dimitri Payet because obviously he had a right. great, great goal on sunday We've mentioned this on the last couple of podcasts that he, at coming off of his injury, he's playing himself into best 11 consideration, but given the way that Vardy and Marez and Otsol haven't been able to maintain the same form that they had in October, and November, and December, do you guys think there's a way that Paye, if he keeps this up, could actually play himself into player of the year contention?
0: Well, it'll depend on where West Ham finish up also. I mean, if they finish in the top four, then maybe he comes into it, but given how good Leicester, how well Leicester have done. Uh, I think Vardy is probably good, just odds on in terms of the fact, the impact he's had on a team that is overachieving as well. By the way, for, for the record, it should have been sent off before he uh, had no, that he brilliant, no, he brilliant freak. Yeah. yeah he what, should re- have. what record Absolutely. is
1: this? We're talking about here. What yeah. red
0: card is this? What record is this? For the or record. The record. Card, oh. It was a, it was a second yellow, which would have been a red card for the record.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and where was he getting that second yellow from?
0: The, uh, the ref, through which series of decisions within time and space was he doing that well what happened was he was going for the ball uh he he had the ball and then he dived uh and he should have got a second yellow for that
2: dive some people say there was contact and actually uh, from a number of people in england most um, you know
0: i've seen the clip i think he was touched and there are other Uh, people who say they think he was touched um i'm happy to argue that but every every replay i've seen i have not seen any contact
1: okay well, I guess it is a little bit debatable then whether he should have been sent off or not. Uh Let's go back to the record and erase that line. Lampoon. Sorry. Red card. Yeah, Judge isn't going li- to admit it <laughs> into record. Uh, let's talk about the other two FA Cup matches. Uh Everton-Chelsea is the one that people are mostly going to want to talk about. It's the one FA Cup quarterfinal that took place on Saturday. Everton scoring two late goals after a, a rather miserable first 60 or 70 minutes in this game. Uh Let's talk about the result first, and then let's talk about the antics second. Everton, two-nil victory. Uh, Lawrence, there is increased pressure on Roberto Martinez to deliver something. If uh, Can we consider them one of the favorites in this tournament if for no reason other than they might have the most talented team if Manchester United bows out?
2: Other than um, also the idea that you know if they play well, uh, then they are a side that's really difficult to beat because they overpower other sides.
1: And, and Roberto yeah. Martinez has won this competition before.
2: Yeah, which it, it almost seems weird because you think, of you, you. think, where did he come from? And then you think, well, he kind of won the FA Cup before. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he has. Uh, and I think that is because he's, he strikes you uh, not to cliche too much, but a cup manager. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, he can motivate his teams in that way. And also his team do play well for the Cups. Yeah. You he's- know, I, I don't mean that in like a literal sense. I literally mean they set up well to play well in a cup because... They're very attacking, you know, over 90 minutes. It's not sort of like, okay, we're doing this up for the long term. It's a very short term thing. It's kind of like, right, let's go again. And you're out.
1: Yeah. I was talking to a friend the other day about how I consider him the Spanish Nigel Clough. Uh, I don't think I meant that in a good way. Uh, Nipun, let's talk about the antics now. Uh, Diego Costa gets a second yellow card in this one. Uh, He's dismissed. Uh, Tape seems to show him... Uh, I guess the best way to describe it is making a biting notion to Gareth Bale's neck while the two were uh entangled on the field. Uh Gareth Barry, <laughs> sorry, I think I might have said Gareth Bale, Gareth Barry. Uh, Gareth Barry himself was sent off later in this match. Uh, mm-hmm. Afterwards, Martinez, Barry insisting that Costa did not bite uh Gareth Barry. Maybe they're lying, I don't know, because people are still reporting as if this bite is happening. There's speculation that Costa might be suspended for a significant amount of time. Uh Just give me your thoughts on this. I think this is really weird, not only what Costa did, if he didn't bite Gareth Barry, what the hell was he doing, but also people's just insistence on not listening to Gareth Bale and Roberto Martinez on this and training this as if this is another Luis Suarez situation.
0: Yeah, I I mean, a few different thoughts I have on this. So Gareth Barry, first of all, has done Costa a huge, huge favor here because a lot of players uh, would have probably gone down as soon as Costa made any sort of contact with any part of their necks right I mean let's be honest about that so Gareth Barry not only during the game but even after the with his interview has done Costa a huge solid or else I think he would have he would probably have got suspended if uh, if Barry didn't see anything now we don't know if he will or not but the other thing that I want to talk about first of all really surprising when you realize this is the first time Costa has been sent off in a Chelsea shirt he he, he averages a yellow card every three games, but he's never been sent off, which is pretty crazy. And I keep going back to that, that Gabriel moment against Arsenal, which else between Chelsea and Arsenal, where he kicked out of Gabriel and Gabriel ends up getting sent off. Mm-hmm. And Mourinho, after the game, if you remember, his defense of Costa was, he plays like he has to play. And then he went off on this rant about how Mil- Costa Costa's antics put millions of people in seats. And I remember thinking that these sorts of things are what feed a victim mentality in a player. And it's taken a while. It's taken six, seven months. But I think it's finally come to the point. Uh, and maybe you can argue that the fact that he let Mourinho down with his form kind of came to bite him in the butt. But even now, I feel like there's long-term repercussions to dealing with a player like Costa the way he's been dealt with, where you just feed his victim mentality.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, what other match on Friday at Crystal Palace? Two nothing victory over Reading. They're in the semifinals. Lawrence, this just complicates the picture around Alan Pardew. Crystal Palace has been pretty bad in league. And now after wins over Tottenham and Reading, they're, they're at Wembley in the FA Cup. Uh, Pardew seems to be going through another second half of the Premier League season collapse. Yet his team is now within two wins of, uh, of kind of emboldening his legend around Crystal Palace, at least as it concerns this competition
2: or he just bought himself more time, you yeah. know? Oh, certainly it really depends on how you write the headline, isn't it? Well, c- um, certainly. Uh, yeah. I, I think the fans are becoming a little bit frustrated with what they're seeing from palace. I mean, you know, beating Reading is obviously no mean feat. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think there are question marks being uh, raised over uh, his longevity at the club, basically. And I think the club are looking for longevity right now. They'll be happy to stay in the Premier League yet again for another season. And, um, you know, that's great. But if there will be more questions asked in the off-season, I think a lot of people will raise um, serious issues over his sort of long-term ability to build a club and build a team and sort of whether it's best to... I, I think the approach with Alan Pardew is very often
1: better than Pardew you know. Uh, Well, everybody, there was some action in the Premier League this weekend. Four games. There's another on Monday. Next segment of the show, we're going to talk about those results. Uh, We're also going to get to results from Europe. Uh, Look forward to Champions League later in the show. For now, we're going to take our first break. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Premier League time, guys. I was a little disappointed. I kind of want this Premier League season to maintain its momentum, but this... uh, this FA Cup weekend made it seem like there wasn't any Premier League action at all. In reality, there were four games. I'm going to start at the bottom of the table and work my way up, mostly because the game that was at the bottom of the table was the most entertaining of the weekend. Bournemouth 3-2 victory over Swansea, twice Swansea equalized. Bournemouth gets the last goal of the game from Steve Cook, somebody that's been finding a couple of other goals lately, uh, stepping up their center back. Uh, rather than talk about the details of this game, guys, I want to kind of zoom out and look at the bigger picture here. Bournemouth now has as many points on the season as Everton. Uh, Granted, Everton has two games in hand, and Everton's going to have a pretty busy fixture list over the next couple of months, making up a Mercy's Eye Darby as well as uh their mm-hmm. Sunderland match this weekend. But uh 38 points through 30 rounds, three wins in a row, unbeaten in four, and this was a team that was decimated by injury in the first half of the season. Lawrence, I think uh we spent a lot of time talking about the top of the table because it's such a unique title race, but... This is a story that would be getting a lot more attention if this were any other or any normal Premier League season.
2: Very good point. Yeah. Um although I I still feel like it gets
1: uh, a good enough amount of attention. Yeah.
2: Um yeah. I yeah, there's plenty of people but the problem is that everyone starts with the way that you just did it where they go no one else is covering and I, everyone is covering. Huh. Um i'm not accusing you of being myopic i'm just saying like you know
1: no i think i'm actually thinking about how myopic i am am i not reading enough stuff or uh actually there's pretty only, there's pretty much only a couple websites i even read now and that's uh, that's it that and watch games so maybe i am being a little bit myopic world soccer
2: talk or nothing for me um and uh, uh yeah well, i'm hell. i'm imp- I'm also impressed with like i said nothing um it i'm also <laughs> impressed with uh, the the way that uh he's setting them up it's two banks of four um and that's becoming more and more popular within management right now you know mm-hmm. uh to, to go back to that especially when playing sides who are playing uh uh four two three one which yeah. is what um which is what swansea were playing um and it, it seems to be working really well and i think that's what i like is i'm really enjoying this season that for you know obviously for a time we've looked at the trends within the premier League, go four five one sort of a decade ago then it went sort of a 4-3-3 with Pep Guardiola's team then there was kind of this false nine idea and then we got there were, there were other things and iterations within that Italy sort of played 4-4-2 against that and it just got completely blown away but you could see where they were going with it and I think that that was the start almost in like Euro 2014 uh, sorry Euro 2012 of when people were looking at trying to go back to the banks of four um, and I think uh, you, you know it's sort of it's coming back now and it's it shows what kind of a manager I think Eddie Howe is because, you know, he's up there with the other managers within Europe who are playing
1: that. Yeah, I think it definitely shows a lot of the quality in Eddie Howe that he took a kind of couple months this season to adjust to the new squad he had to adjust to the lack of player resources he had after injury and he's come out uh, with a team that stylistically is consistent with the principles that he holds most dear but as far as the shape and the formation of the team he's made significant adjustments and um, maybe like you're saying has learned from other examples across u- uh, Europe how to utilize those banks of fours and whether you're playing uh, a player in between those banks of fours or is today with Joshua King playing somebody above those banks of fours uh, really use a lot utilizing that base structure to put some solidity in your team. Uh, as is, Bournemouth now is creeping up on the top half of the table. They're in 13th place. Granted, they have played the full 30 rounds and the three teams in ton- front of them. Everton, West Brom, and Chelsea all have at least one match in hand. Creeping up the table, though, this is a match that, it actually has European implications. Stoke coming into the weekend was a team that was on the fringe of Europa League play. Southampton only a couple points behind them. Uh, Southampton getting a really good result here. Graziano Pele, guys, showing up yeah. again. Uh, has had a really, um, I, I guess bad, seems like it's too strong, but when you actually get benched, that is bad. But for three or four months, he hasn't been the player that I think a lot of us thought he would be this year. But Lawrence, two goals in the first half hour of this game. Uh, Pele giving one of the most impressive performances of the weekend.
2: You kind of hope for him and for Italy as well, that he comes into form come the end of the season. Um, Because, uh, you know, I think think it it would also make for a great Euros. It would also make for uh, confidence for the likes of Southampton as well. Um, uh, Basically, with this game, I think that overall we were seeing a side uh, who were maybe slightly further along in their uh, developments under a coach Mm -hmm. um, play out tactically better, basically. Mm. Um, and if you also look at who Pella's got alongside him, I think they have a slightly more synergetic side at the front. Um, you know, Tadic long. Um, and I, I'm also really enjoying this season seeing uh, what Romelu's doing in midfield for Southampton. Mm. Uh, I, you know, I, don't, I don't think he looks like a Chelsea player, uh, but I definitely think he looks like a Premier League player.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you were a Chelsea player, he'd be in 10th place, as is he's on a team that's in 7th place right <laughs> very, now.
2: Very, very good. No, it's a very good point. Is. <laughs> yeah.
1: Southampton is within three points of Manchester United, five points of West Ham, about 7th place there, although they uh, have played two more games in Liverpool who have the same point total, 44. So
2: what, what's going on with Mane, guys?
1: I mean, yeah. you know, we're
2: yeah. talking about, we're talking about Pella, but you know, what's going on with Mane? Because there was a point in the season where we were talking about literally Mane would be the solution to He Mane looks Mane like United a
1: Manchester Sports. United player right now.
2: <laughs>
0: right,
1: now we yeah. yeah, Too yeah. soon,
0: bro. Too soon.
1: So for people that haven't been following Southampton, Mane's been benched. He hasn't started the last three or four games, and he picked up a red card in stoppage time today, so he won't even be on the bench for their next Premier League match.
2: Uh, you can't bench me.
1: I'll bench myself.
0: <laughs> I thought that was an unlucky red, by the way. I don't yeah, think yeah, that yeah. was... Yeah. Uh, but, but I think with Mane, there are some issues. I wonder if it's simply his, his head isn't uh, at Southampton anymore. If he's just after everything that happened... If, first in the summer and then in the January window, he's just decided that his future is away from Southampton. He's kind of just going through the motions.
2: Hmm. Can also say guys, I, I also don't, I, I feel like, you know, we were talking about, um, we were talking about what, uh, we've seen, uh, Bournemouth do. I, I do like, uh, the exploration of formations that has gone on at Southampton as well. You know, three, five at the back. Uh, they play five, three, two, just a couple of weeks ago, I think against Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, while we're talking about two months before and then two and uh, or, or four, four, one, one, you know, they've they've also played some systems which in England, most people literally just write off as too hard. Um, yeah. And so, you know, while we're talking about the adaptability of players and, you know, you're talking about that, Nipun, th- this is a very adaptable side. You know, we saw I yeah. think it was Shane Long and Charlie Austin playing alongside each other mm-hmm. as a two up front in front of a three. Which was a really great transitional midfield with great wing backs.
1: Guys, there is this kind of other side of this coin. I think it's one that I thought of as people were drawing to parallels between Stoke and Southampton this weekend. Kind of natural parallels because they're occupying the same place in the table. And I think a lot of people see them as having the same talent level. But Like Lawrence was talking about with the diversity of options that Ronald Koeman is employing as far as his selection and the depth of the team, we've talked about that before. They now have four or five different attackers they can choose from. They have four or five different midfielders. They have a number of defenders and they can play in different uh, formations back there. It just seems like Southampton is a little bit farther along in their development cycle. Maybe that's based on last year in Nipun, where Southampton was obviously wildly successful. Right. Maybe that's based on the experience of their squad. But Stokes still seems to me to be two or three years away from where people talk about they are now. We don't have to go into that again. Where Southampton, to me, seems like a legitimate contender for European competition.
0: They are. And it. it I mean, I think a lot of us, myself included, sometimes forget how quickly that, that squad was dismantled and how many players they how many starters they lost in one fell swoop. And it's almost the feeling that because all of those players were lost at the same time, it allowed Kuman to kind of build from scratch and it's worked into their advantage. And while I'm I'm pretty optimistic about that, I also realize that there there was a few games in there uh, around the turn of the, the 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 year where Southampton looked like a very ordinary side. So I think uh, in order for Southampton to uh, make a real push in the future, I think they need to invest in the squad because even though as you said there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, tactical flexibility, I think there aren't uh, there isn't enough squad depth just yet. Uh, and maybe one or two real game changers. Because Shane Long is one that they rely on. And, and we've talked about the likes of Wanyama, Uh But I think, I don't know. I, I just don't think they're ready just yet.
1: Well, if they end up getting over $20 million for Mane or something close to the price that we thought Manchester United was going to pay for the Mane at the last summer's transfer window, they're going to have some funds. With which Not anymore. Team. Well, maybe. You yeah. never know. There's going to be a lot of money floating around in this league, so we'll wait and see. Hmm? Uh, let's keep moving up the table. Manchester City, Norwich City, nil-nil uh, at Carroll Road here. Norwich getting a valuable point, although they stay in the bottom three on goal difference compared to Sunderland, who's in seventh place. Uh, the bigger story here, the one everybody's talking about, is Manchester City, Lawrence. A lot of people talking about this as if it's the death knell in their title, uh, their title race. Whether they were that active in the title race before this weekend is maybe debatable. They came in 10 points back of Leicester. And now they're nine points back. Leicester obviously going to play on Monday against Newcastle. It, I guess maybe answer my implied question, even though I, it seems like a dumb question. Is it time we stop considering Manchester City part of the title picture?
2: Nine points back from Leicester um seven back yeah um yeah because just because um they don't look like a particularly motivated side although they did come up you know Norwich is Norwich is a side who are looking to stay up looking to fight for every point and I think for that reason you can't kind of put it beyond them to challenge City to this degree um what I would rather say is that I don't feel like City tactically put themselves to a level where they were better than Norwich in this game. Um, you know, I, I think basically they're outworked by this Norwich side. And that's not good enough for a Man City in any side, essentially. But the difference between, say, I don't know, Pep Guardiola uh, version of that side and any other management version of that side is that a lot of the time, the belief in the system would pr- and the system itself would negate the lack of or sort of uh, put the work into the right places to make Man City uh, work and I don't think that's working right now. They don't. I don't think
0: they have a structure or a form that suits them. So it, it, it might be a little over, overly simplistic, but do you guys think the fact that you can definitely draw a correlation between the results going to uh, going downhill since the announcement uh, that Guardiola was coming in? Do you guys think mm-hmm. it, that that actually is one of the reasons why they've fallen away? I got. I got a.
2: Uh, I mean, from outside, you correlate those things. You'd also say, I mean, Man City just managed that. But. Ter- why man city and pep Guardiola have done this i do not know because it it doesn't it just doesn't need to be done now there's got to be another more private reason maybe it shares in the club maybe it's something like that
1: you don't um, buy into the theory that pellegrini wanted it announced and finalized and didn't want to uh, live in the shadows for these last five or six months of his time at manchester city
2: but that's maybe what i'm saying even in the shadows but but even then you yeah. can say well who's created the shadows
1: yeah i mean they could have they could have gone Sorry Manuel we think it's better for the team if this remains between the the few of us until May.
2: Or you could just say yeah exactly or you just say look yeah basically we can manage this better. Mm. And even then, you know, there are there's so many other narratives that go around that where you okay. think it could have been managed better. I think one right. of the many journalists tweeted the other day literally let's do it for Manuel doesn't seem like enough motivation for this
1: team. (laughs) I'm with you, Lawrence, just from the selection to the actual execution to the the lack of a distinct plan developed uh, to break down Norwich. This was just a very uninspiring effort from City, from the playing staff to the coaching staff. I just kind of got the feeling this was the first time in a long time where... They just kind of picked their 11 best players at the moment and didn't really think about how those players were going to come together. Uh, maybe taking Norwich for granted and thinking that their talent was going to win out in the end. uh, As is, uh, like we implied at the beginning of this discussion, it's very difficult to see Manchester City still being a viable part of the title picture. A one team that is viable. It's also what we're looking for, though.
2: You know, what we're looking for in the Premier League right now is there are certain things we're looking for, essentially. Um, we, you know, hard work, a very clear tactical idea. That's the trendy thing right now. There's something very untrendy and unpopular about Man City.
1: Well, I think if, you know, Aguero had had a moment of glory this weekend, or even if Boney had converted off a set piece or something like that, we wouldn't be talking like this because Pellegrini's implicit uh, assumption that his team could win out on talent would, would come through. Ultimately, we're trying to find explanations for a team that only has four points in their last five league games. And that type of team, to me, is one that maybe the coaching staff should be going the extra mile to put them in the best place to succeed because based on talent alone, it, it, it has clearly hasn't been happening lately. Uh, getting back to the title picture, we're going to talk about now the one team uh, in the title picture that actually played this weekend. Of course, Leicester plays on Monday. Tottenham played on Sunday, two early second-half goals from Harry Kane at Villa Park, 2 nothing victory for Spurs. Spurs now through 30 rounds are only two back of Leicester. Leicester will have their match in hand played tomorrow. Nippoon, Tottenham seems to have recovered nicely from a very poor performance midweek against uh, BVB. They also bounced back from two games where they only got one point, including that draw last weekend against 10-man Arsenal. Uh, Ultimately, though, this is just kind of the result we
0: expected, right? It was, and uh, you guys talked about the Dortmund-Spurs game and Personally, I thought that, um, I mean, I I thought Pochettino got his decision right. I mean, uh, this is not an original thought. I don't remember um, what podcast I heard this on. But realistically, if you asked a Spurs fan, if he had the choice to maybe try to go out and beat Dortmund and then end up losing uh, uh, during the weekend and lose their chance to maybe win their first title in what um, over half a century, I think most Spurs fans would have said that they will focus on the Premier League. Yeah, and, and I think that's what you're totally... talking
1: about is on Thursday, he started Chadley up top, uh, right. rotated the, Sun into the team. Rotated switched, seven players out. Right, yeah. switched both of his uh, central midfielders, which he usually doesn't do. He rotated his fullbacks, which he's doing regularly right now. But already there, we've mentioned seven players, and the other attacker in the team was rotated too. Only Christian Eriksen was maintained in the exactly. team from the attacking four. So uh, like you said, there there seem to be... uh I don't know it, it, it's almost as if in the face of, of Dortmund he was kind of using it as an excuse to say this is an opportunity to focus on England at this point
0: and and more power to him I, I think that that was the right decision I think he needed to give probably needed he felt he needed to give some of these players a bit of a break and get them revved up for the last they have what eight games left I think now till the end of the season and if they end up going up going out to BVB uh, to, to Dortmund And even if they come second, a close second, I think most Spurs supporters will think that the season was a success, as opposed to them even beat Dortmund and get to the final and end up losing a fourth-place spot or third-place spot, whatever it is, they'll feel like they've missed out on a chance. Because this is a big chance for Spurs to win the league this year. And yeah. that should be their focus.
1: Yeah. Uh, the rest certainly seem to work for Harry Kane. He scored goals in the 45th and 48th minutes. He's now up to 19 goals in the Premier League season. That's tied for Jamie Vardy up top the scoring charts. Romelu Lukaku is only one goal back. Going to take our second break right now. When we come back, we'll talk about what's been happening in Germany and Spain. Talk about some news from France that maybe affects the Premier League for next year. And then we're going to get our players of the weekend, our top forwards. And then talk about Monday's game and the news around Monday's game. Newcastle finally making a coaching change. Stay with us. So this is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back. Let's go over to Germany now, where the results were as expected, at least in the top two spots of the table. Coming off of last weekend's classic,er where Bayern and Dortmund tied nil-nil, Bayern had a 5-0 win at the Allianz Arena over Werder Bremen. Werder is still... S- Slightly above the relegation battle in Germany, three points clear of 16th place. Bayern now up to 66 points through 26 rounds, plus 51 goal difference. Um, Borussia Dortmund, to their credit, stays within five points. They had a 2-0 victory this weekend on Sunday against a good Mainz team, a Mainz team that is still in position to qualify for Europa League next year. Perhaps the biggest game in Germany this weekend was a battle for third place, where Hertha Berlin... Small Cinderella story there, at least they're, they're less resourced than some of the teams like Schalke and Wolfsburg and Bayer Leverkusen that have been chasing them. Schalke visited Berlin this weekend and came away from the Friday game with a 2-0 loss. Uh, Hertha Berlin is now three points clear of Gladbach for the last automatic Champions League spot in the Bundesliga. Over in Spain in the Premier Division, Barcelona continues their assault On La Liga. They're now up to 75 points through 29 rounds after a 6 to nothing victory over Hatafe. Perhaps the most notable news there is the team still seems unable to convert penalty kicks. Leo Messi missing another one in that game. Uh, Atletico Madrid stays eight points back, a convincing 3-0 win over Deportivo La Coruña. I believe that's the third game in a row that Bayern uh, that uh, Atletico scored at least three goals, uh, notable because they have the best defense in Europe, and now their attack is starting to come around. Uh, as we speak right now, Real Madrid is at uh, one of the surging teams in La Liga. Las Palmas has carried themselves out of the bottom of the table with three straight wins. A uh, visit from Real Madrid this weekend, it's 1-0. Nothing currently, Los Blancos, Sergio Ramos with a first half goal. Uh, Other news in Spain, uh, after 14 unbeaten games, Villarreal has lost their second in a row, a 4-2 loss at Sevilla. Sevilla is now within five points of the Yellow Submarine for that last Champions League spot. Uh, Gentlemen, I didn't give you much warning on this, but we've got uh, our Players of the Week here. While you guys think about it, I'm going to go through some of the people that stood out in my mind and go ahead and go first here. Uh, I really wanted to pick somebody from Norwich because they got one of the more more surprising results this weekend at nil nil with Manchester City and I was really close to giving my nod to Tim Closa here who I thought had a very good game in central defense uh, for the Canaries. Gilfie Sigurdsson has been coming on lately. We talked about Steve Cook earlier in the show as well as Graziano Pele. I'm going to give my player of the week to Harry Kane though uh, mostly because the two goals that he had did remind us that in terms of quantity uh, and quality if you want to think about his goal at White Hart Lane, he's having every bit as good a year as Jamie Vardy and while I don't necessarily think he's been a better player uh, than Jamie Vardy. Maybe he's flown a little bit under the radar, given how well Vardy and Romelu Lukaku have performed. With his two goals on Sunday, I want to give him a little attention, so he's my player of
0: the week. Nipun? By the way, is the rule that it has to be someone from the Premier League games? I don't know how the rules yep. work for it. This, <laughs> it does. Yep,
2: just adhere to the rules. Yeah. <laughs> just,
1: <laughs> just stay in
0: your lane, Nipun. Come on. My lane is the right lane. So, okay, I'm going to go... With uh, with Pele, then, if it, if it's a Premier League player, or else I'd give it to Lukaku. Uh, I think Pele was amazing in this game. Great header, and that second finish was terrific. So good to see him back to form.
1: And Lawrence, since you have more than one year seniority on the show, you can go ahead and pick a player from anywhere in Europe. That's cool. It's a great point, Richard. It's um, a really good point that my
2: seniority gives I don't me this. Well, do I have to respect him? Because I don't respect Lawrence at all. No, you will respect my authority. <laughs> Just Jabi Alonso, obviously, guys.
1: Um, <laughs>
2: Just, just inching out, just
1: inching out high of your Mascherano. Obviously, yeah, and
2: Dirk Cout, um, (laughs) and uh, Albert Riera. I just want to say, there's a blast from the past eh? day. Now, about Ryan Babel. Don't forget about Ryan Babel. How could you? Um, (laughs) what I would say is I'm going to go for. Who should I go for, guys? Um, I'm going to go for Max Gradle. Mm.
1: Ah, nice.
2: Yeah, uh, a hardworking player player uh, for Bournemouth. Someone who very often, especially, you know, I listened to this game. And very often when you listen to matches, um, you you hear the same name over and over again. And Max was one of those consistent names in the match. Um, got a goal on the weekend. And I think very often in these Eddie Howe systems, um, or most systems with the four, you see the wingers sort of overlooked. But uh, we're getting that goal this weekend. I'm going to give it to
1: him. Mm. Well, Lawrence, you mentioned that litany of former Liverpool players. I guess that's a good transition to uh, possibly the biggest news of the week in the Premier League. Finally, late in the week, Newcastle made their decision and announced Steve McLaren's departure coming off that 3-1 loss last weekend to the Cherries at St. James's Park. Immediately, Rafa Benitez, former manager of Liverpool and Chelsea, was linked with a move to the Magpies. That move came to fruition very quickly after Newcastle's decision on McLaren. Rafa Benitez back in England. Lawrence, I want to get your thoughts thoughts on this it seems like on one level a decent fit newcastle has a lot of resources certain talent on a more obvious level it seems like a weird fit because newcastle's place in next year's premier league is still very much in doubt
2: that's what seems unusual isn't it you sort of your first answer, your first question is always why
1: yeah what's the motivation you've got you've got an easy
2: it. life you've just been paid <laughs> off by right on madrid you are you know you clearly are millions as a manager at a number of clubs you ex-
1: you're an excellent blogger when it comes to tactics you could do that <laughs> yeah you are a superior coach to a lot of people you're good at <laughs> stating facts <laughs>
2: yeah i mean get get over it Nipun. Um, yeah, never <laughs> i mean do, do you think i mean it, it, he he also spoke about how he's spoken to doug leash and a number of other players beardsley
0: mm-hmm.
2: um i mean just imagine the phone call between Rafa Benitez <laughs> and peter beardsley all right <laughs> that's all that you need um
1: <laughs> that literally is up, all up, i need right now i need audio of that I, that's all that i need
2: <laughs> yeah. hello Hello, <laughs> um, I, I just can't imagine it. But then Peter Bisley seems like Peter Beasley seems like a Liga. Um I, I think he was drawn back towards Newcastle. It, it, it seems like the kind of side that um, Benitez was drawn towards. Very different situation to one that he's found himself in before. Um, he's going to get a different kind of investment at in the club. I imagine he will have been promised some sort of investment. At least he can bring some sort of structure to the side. I imagine he's going to change up the formation a little bit. He'll still probably have two sitting central midfielders, play a 4-3-3. Um, and basically, say to Leicester, come and break us down. What I like about Rafa Benitez is he does assess the other team and sort of play based on um, the way that they're set out. When he first came to Liverpool, he had a very, not a very average, if you like, squad compared to the squad that he ended up building in the end. Um, and he actually got quite a lot out of them. Um, so I, that's why, that's what kind of excites me about him. There's also the other side to Rafa Benitez, which is the one which people say, is the robotic kind of colder, uh, more frigid side, which uh, turns some players off, and some people are saying, I think maybe wrongly to some extent, but you, you know, you can only see in practice, you know, that's what keeps you up in the Premier League. Hmm. So, I, I think it's a mixture of the two. If I'm completely honest, it's a mixture of the players understanding, and I'd imagine what Raf you know, from what Raph has already written, which is basically, look, we need to come together, you know, we need the backing of the fans, all those kind of things. He sort of fulfilled the. Uh, The public side of the emotion. I just wonder whether privately he
0: can do the same. So, uh, from my perspective, by the way, I think it's, I don't see why, I don't see this as a good move from Newcastle's perspective, but from Rafa Benitez's perspective, I think it's a win-win, because if if he keeps them up, he's a hero, and he gets to invest and maybe stay there a season and go to whatever club he wants to go to, rebuild his reputation. If
2: he, if they get (laughs) rather... Just it's with Valencia with a, a free job, you sort of think there must be someone else in the frame for that now, yeah, anyone else aside.
0: yeah. but uh, so the other part is if if he does get them, if he not does get them relegated, if they do get relegated, you can simply say that uh, and most people will agree that the problems uh, preceded him. So in that sense, I think it's a win-win, and I can totally see why he took it. Although I, you you can make the argument that the the side that Lawrence was referring to that the cold side uh, more than that Rafa Benitez is not known to be able to uh, be the best communicator with his players and sometimes uh, that's what you need I mean that's why Paulo De Canio ma- managed to do well when he came <laughs> up as a manager right it's not something that a lot of works long term. <clears throat> Yeah, catch uh, up uh, th- th- and smashing th- people in the face, but yeah.
2: I I don't feel like it is just, you know, there isn't, there isn't one set way to stay up in the Premier League. Because if there was, no, then there'll be a number of managers uh, that would have stayed up.
1: Or Bor- Bournemouth would but, be on 12 points right now.
2: It, it, well, exactly. But I, I also feel like, uh, you know, to answer that sort of the cold side point, it seems in certain situations, Rafa comes across as cold. And I think early on with clubs, A lot of players see so much of a change in the way that things are run so much more efficiency so much uh, more uh sort of thought to the training methods those kind of things that you would hope that that contrast to what the picture of steve mclaren has been painted would motivate the players to the point where they sort of they they kick into gear or whatever whatever phrase you want to use for that Mm. i don't know if that's true but you i really hope it is because you know, I, I obviously I wish Rafa says well, I want him to do well, but you you also hope that he can sort of prove that there is a side to coaching which keeps people up.
1: Yeah, I think the the cold that people talk about with him, I think it has parallels with Guardiola where it's just more distant than cold and you're relying on the structures that you've put in place to create a uh, level of professionalism within the team that yeah. can transcend that. that. So people don't need an arm around the shoulders and don't need to be uh, constantly coddled in order to get the pro- best performances out of them. I think that undid some him. Some people
2: get that.
0: Some people don't. But isn't that isn't that the point, though, well, no, Richard? I think, that, fact- I think
1: that undid him at Real Madrid. That was right. a failure in a squad with a lot of egos that needed to be coaxed. And nobody really felt like they had a connection with Rafa Benitez. And they never really thought about that as being as much their fault as Rafa Benitez's fault. In some situations, it's going to be a bad thing. At Newcastle, exactly. I completely agree with Lawrence, at least in the short term. It is going to instill a sense of professionalism, a sense of, of obligation that will tell all the players, look, these are the systems we have in place. You're expected to perform within them. And if you do, we are going to be fine. And I think Newcastle is going to be fine. I think it's a,
2: what, a ben- what I, what, what I do think is, is unusual is that people, Benitez is such a public, Uh, figure obviously and was uh, such a figure of fun in England and I think for a lot of people that that was the case when you go back and you look at other managers within uh, you can take Liverpool as an example within Liverpool's history interview some of the players who played under Bob Paisley interview some of the players who played under anyone in the boot room there will be uh, for instance the captain of the side Phil Neal said to me in an interview said Bob Paisley was not good at personal talks he would leave that to Ronnie Moran or uh, one of the other guys from the back room and literally let them deal with it. Now, all, all I say to that is no one ever says Bob Paisley, he was cold mm-hmm. because, or no one ever says Bob Paisley, he didn't have that side to his game. All they remember is the success mm-hmm. or all they remember is, you know, w- whatever else it is they want to remember about him. I think Rafa Benitez is somewhat picked out as a figure of fun and therefore, it makes it very easy to take him down. One thing Rafa, do, Rafa does lack now is his number two, who I think is currently at Valencia. Yeah, he just got uh, hired there
1: Paco,
2: by yeah. a, a, a wonderful hire by them because yeah. apparently he's a great coach, really good man manager, and someone you'd imagine will do fantastically. That's what made, led me to believe that Rafa would end up going back there. Um,
1: well, they, those two have also had a falling really out sad. too. So
2: yeah, which is which is very sad because actually that ultimately led to part of the demise of Rafa at the club was yeah. that you know Paco was really good at actually putting his arm around the players and essentially being the link between Rafa's um, you know geekish side and mm-hmm. the players who were a little bit warmer. You know, the Jabby Alonso is the Rafa the Reiner, uh, right. side. I think there are players like that in this Newcastle team that will react to that, like you say. Yeah,
1: um, and but and I don't like the point too much. Yeah, I think so too. Somebody like a Fabrizio Collecchini there has been there a while. It seems to be a a leader for better or worse within the team and if Rafa can rely on players like that to be the Reina type players, it could really work. I think um I think this whole decision on Rafa's part it really maybe goes back to him not going to West Ham this summer and instead pursuing his dream job at Real Madrid and having a very negative uh experience there over three months or so, and maybe looking at what Slavin Bilic has done with West Ham with some fondness and being able to go to a situation where you are going to be respected. And you're not always going to be doubted, and people are going to be open to the possibilities of what you, perhaps not an elite manager anymore, but uh, somebody that should be respected, can bring to the club. And when you look at Newcastle, it's you know one of the seven or eight biggest clubs in England, and uh, they're not so far... <laughs> is in so much trouble in the table that it's unreasonable to think that with some basic structure and organization Rafa can keep them up. And then after that, I don't think it's so impossible to think that Newcastle will have a, a top half finish next year or even compete for Europe because uh, Rafa does have at least uh, some sustained performance or sustained results on his record. I think it's a, I think it's a brilliant fit for Newcastle. And if, uh if Rafa can keep the magpies up this year, I think it can also be a brilliant fit for him. Uh One other piece of news I want to talk about Lawrence before we go into break is, uh, So our friend Zlatan Ibrahimovic, uh, Mm. PSG won 9 to nothing this weekend over Trois in Ligue 1. They have (laughs) clinched the title in France. It's the earliest a team has ever clinched the title in that league. Uh, but the news coming out of the game, people asking Zlatan if he's going to sign a new contract with PSG, his contract being up this summer. He said basically a creative way of saying no. He said only if they replace the Eiffel Tower with a statue of me. So Zlatan definitely seems to be on the move. And wow. uh, it seems like people are talking about England as being kind of a a way station for the next year or two before he goes to China or U.S. or wherever he, somebody goes for their last paycheck. Uh, we've heard Manchester United rumors. We've heard Arsenal rumors. Do you think there's a a particular fit in the Premier League for Zlatan. I can't help but think that somebody like him, uh, given what's going on at Stamford Bridge, uh, wouldn't be attractive to Chelsea. Yeah,
2: I think he wants to go to a club that seems stable, right?
1: Yeah, so I, so Leicester.
2: Right? Uh, Leicester's one, uh, Southampton's one. Watford is very stable. Watford seems stable, um, although... That, you actually, know what I find... The,
1: <laughs> Watford's I, spot I, I is kind of the opposite of stable, actually.
2: You know what I find weird? I... Uh, and maybe it's just because i am so romantic about liverpool there is a certain fit there um
1: but i think <laughs> i don't
2: know uh, now, let's just let me just lay out what i don't think it will happen I, but i could lay out why for you
1: 35 year old um, Zlatan playing a Klopp system oof
2: L- liverpool do uh, yeah but richard how many teams is he going to start for in the premier league
1: whichever team signs him i think that's going to be the expectation right for him okay. for him in signing
2: um uh, Yeah. Um, How he fits Liverpool as a club. Uh, He's His character, Liverpool, cannot afford big players right now in terms of transfer fees, right? So they they just can't do that, but they'll still give him a signing on fee. Uh, It's a wonderful piece of marketing for both sides. A club with history that's not currently in turmoil or changing manager. Um, A really good option in terms of a target man in the box and also just bringing moves together. His movement uh, could work as part of a Klopp system with hard-working players around him. Also, I think there are certain other individuals at the club who are actually enhanced by better players and other egos around them, a la Daniel Sturridge, Coutinho, uh,
1: Firmino, those kind of guys.
2: <laughs> just, just putting it out there. But he can't go to Chelsea. I don't think he goes. To too disruptive. For, he can't go
1: to Man- uh, he can't go to Man City with Guardiola there.
2: Yeah, essentially, he can't go to a disciple of uh, Guardiola, which is Pochettino. I, I, I know he's not a direct disciple, but Pep is very appreciative of his kind of, of uh, his football.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, like you say, I think Leicester is the perfect fit. Yeah.
1: Newcastle, it is Rafa Benitez's first big signing. Oh my there.
2: god! Yeah, could you imagine that? Rafa Rafa doesn't really like a big target man, no. but. Wow, Richard, you've
1: nailed it. Let's go ahead and take our last break now. When we come back, we'll update you on a turbulent picture in the championship. We'll get our top fours, and then we'll start talking about midweek Champions League action. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. the championship. Uh, they actually had a mount round midweek that Kartik and I didn't talk about, so there's been a lot of movement in the second division since we last spoke about it. Uh, the biggest move has been by Burnley, who have now won six in a row, and they're seven points clear of second place Middlesbrough after their 3-1 win at Huddersfield this weekend. Uh, in order to craft that kind of gap, you need a little bit of help from the team behind you. Middlesbrough had a terrible week both on and off the field. We'll talk about off the field in a second, but Middlesbrough lost midweek at Rotherham, and then Lost on Sunday to Charlton. Those are two teams that are both in the relegation spots in the second division. Uh, Further down, Hull, after getting pasted by Arsenal in their replay midweek, were held 1-1 at home by Milton Keynes. They are in third place, nine points back of Burnley fourth, fifth, and sixth, currently occupied by Brighton, who had the weekend off, A derby who drew, and then Sheffield Wednesday, whose 3 nothing win at Nottingham Forest cost Dougie Freeman his job there. Uh, probably the biggest news in the championship right now is the turmoil, the sudden turmoil, that is surrounding Middlesbrough. For much of the year, they were the best team in the league, and with their matches in hand, they are expected to take first place over these last couple of weeks. But the results this week led to their coach, uh, former, well, I guess he's still a Mourinho disciple, Etor Carranca, to confront his team later in the week and really question their level of play. Uh, As a result, a rift has formed between him and the squad. And there are real questions as to whether Ator Karanka will continue with this team. I think he's gone, actually. Yeah, I, I did check that before the show. And it seems like it's untenable. So if he's not gone by now, he's probably going to be gone by the time people listen to it. Uh, yeah, it's a, exactly. It's a really sad stat, stat state of affairs for Middlesbrough because for most of this year, they've seen like the best team in the championship, and they've completely fallen apart over the last two or three weeks. Uh, why Karanka would confront his team like that and basically make a stand apparently kronka basically said i can't coach you if you guys are going to play like this and the squad seemingly called his bluff uh middlesbrough is in a bit of chaos right now so uh they are eight points up on sixth place six being the last playoff spot Uh, there are they have 10 more games to play i believe uh yes 10 more games to play in league so it seems unlikely that they would jump drop out of the playoff spots entirely but uh Boro is in a surprising bit of chaos, and for Burnley in particular, that's good news as they look like they're gonna bounce back up to the Premier League. Lawrence, let's go. Let's ourselves bounce back up to the Premier League. Uh, let's do our top fours you're up
2: uh i'm gonna go based on can i base it on the weekend or what am i gonna base this on the I don't know. Not that many just, this weekend. yeah let's just know. skip
1: the form one because when you only have 10 teams in the league or eight teams in the league that play this weekend who cares about form let's talk about end of the year we have had other results be it the fa cup uh, where arsenal played twice or uh, tottenham actually playing that might affect our view of the top four uh, what order do you have them in right now
2: it's going to be really fascinating, actually, to see how Leicester do against this Rafa Benitez team.
1: Yeah. Um, although he's only had a couple of days of it
2: is he so even going to be on the, really? Instill? Yeah, is he
1: even going to be on the bench Monday? I don't know. Probably um, not. Right?
2: Yeah. I mean, surely if you if you instill a new manager, then you would want that quick, right? Yeah. I guess. Um, yeah. How many training sessions can he have with them? Really, two maximum in that time. Maybe, Maybe. they've will doubled up on one, but why would you want to tie players out before a game? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm still going to put Leicester top, just because they. Um, are the side that seemed the most impressive this weekend, even though they haven't even played yet. (laughs) Um, uh, Spurs in second, just because they managed to, in the end, break down an Aston Villa side, who seemed to have found some sort of uh, structure there. Although it it seemed just as much that uh, Spurs were sort of dispirited in some way. Um, I'm also then going to go for Bournemouth, just because I'm appreciating (laughs) where they're playing right now uh and then i'll go man city in
1: there as well well yeah that's that's bold but uh you know i guess there's still time except for math tells us there's not um yeah so my top my top four is the same as it's been last couple of weeks it's leicester spurs city arsenal still debating whether to put west ham into the mix um i don't know i i just can't do it for some reason i think at some point the urgency with both arsenal and city squads will take over but uh yeah. You know, if, if form holds over these next uh, nine rounds of the league, West Ham probably finishes third. Of course, form isn't going to exactly hold, but that's how close this race is. West Ham's only two back of City. Everybody's on 29 games played at this point. West Ham's only three back of Arsenal. I guess if, if I were going to go on form, I'd say Arsenal finishes fifth, but we, we know they never finish fifth. So, I don't know. Just, it's just a crazy year. Um, maybe I'll put Liverpool in the top four. There's still chance there. Uh, yeah. Lawrence, let's uh, shift our focus a little bit. Let's talk about uh, midweek Champions League. We've got four matches, two involving English teams. Starting on Tuesday, the one that doesn't involve a Premier League side, Atletico Madrid is hosting PSV after a nil-nil at Eindhoven. Atletico is going to be a heavy favorite to reach the quarterfinals there. And then Manchester City against Dynamo Kiev. This one seems pretty close to, uh, as y'all would say, done and dusted. City with a mm. 3-1 win in Kiev three weeks ago. Um, but I guess based on how City's been playing lately, anything is possible Uh, your thoughts on this one
2: Uh, yeah like you say uh, down and dusted uh, basically you know they put themselves too far ahead in the first leg Uh, say they score very early on then there's still going to be a a shakiness to them but I don't think that uh, Man City are the the kind of side that are prone to a collapse Um, so I, I just put this
1: beyond Kiev basically yeah, their defense has had problems this year, but they still have only allowed 31 goals in 29 games in the Premier League. So exactly. The, the, yeah. the, I could see this being kind of a dull nil nil, where Manchester City never kicks it into gear, much like the Norwich game. But I just don't see their defense allowing. They would have to allow three goals because they have three uh, away goals at this point. So even uh-huh. even a two nil loss at home, they still go through. Um Let's talk about Wednesday's uh, game involving a Premier League side. This one also appears to be a bit done and dusted. Barca getting a two nil victory at the Emirates three weeks ago. It was a, like we talked about on the show. It was a strong performance against Ars- against Barcelona by Arsenal, but just a remarkably great Barcelona team. I don't really see that changing in this one. I think that we're probably looking at another two three nil result here. Barcelona is just on another planet at this point.
2: Yeah, um, although I mean, you would say Barcelona could have put it. Well, actually, no, they couldn't have put it further ahead of Arsenal in the first half. No, they didn't create I, I that think, many more chances yeah. in the two, did they?
1: Arsenal was just very... Well, they had a couple of chances. I think Luis Suarez had a had a chance in the late in the first half. But, it, you know, it, was just, it wasn't like anything remarkable, like an onslaught where you're like, oh, they really should be up more now. I think Arsenal played well, and eventually Barcelona just had some moments of great execution. I mean, that counter-attack goal, exactly. that counter-attack goal was amazing to think about.
2: Yeah, I, yeah, that kind of, Amazing at the same time, very frustrating, I'd imagine, for Arsenal because yeah. it's one of the things they just didn't want to get caught out on on the night. Yeah. Um, and you imagine that's what Wenger sort of will be left fuming about. And then there's obviously the penalty. So actually, it's really just the one goal that Arsenal were caught out on. That for that reason. I think if Arsenal score first, they're going to make Barcelona feel shaky. But I still, like you say, see Barcelona going through in this one. Um, you know, it, the results on the weekend don't even really mean anything for this Champions League result. It basically means... Um, Arsenal struggled against Watford and Barcelona just did what Barcelona normally do yeah. um, so you know, basically what I'm saying is I think Arsenal got a chance at 2-0, if you score that away goal why not give them a chance yeah. Yeah, it, this is the approach that Arsenal have to take it's like screw it, why not because there is no other approach against Barcelona
1: yeah, I think one of the good things about this scoreline is that they don't necessarily need to be super aggressive from the opening kickoff. They can kind of see how the match plays out, and I, I suspect what will happen is that they'll sit back and then nothing will happen for the first 30 or 40 minutes, and they'll slowly start to develop some way they're comfortable trying to get forward, and then we'll see more activity in the second half. But uh they're not so far um, out of this, they, You're dead. You're 5-0 down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. And then Luis Suarez happens and it's over. Uh Perhaps the yeah. marquee matchup of the week, though, is going to take place in Germany. Bayern got off to a 2 nil lead three weeks ago in Turin, it looked like they were going to roll over juventus but in the last half hour of that match juventus scored two goals uh the, the italian and the german champions are tied 2 two going into their second leg it does seem like Bayern has woken up a little bit lately Lawrence they had the 5-0 this weekend they beat Wolfsburg decidedly decidedly recently they played well at Dortmund to get a draw there so I wonder if this Bayern team that we're seeing right now is in a little better place than they were when they went to Juventus and had been struggling for the weeks leading into that one at the same time based on their run to the semifinals a couple years ago the run of the finals last year the resiliency that they have shown in league this season I'm really really reticent to count Juventus out on any level
2: the only time that Juve have really struggled since the um y- since the since the uh buying game would actually be against inter over the uh copper in the copper italia mm. apart from that they've looked very comfortable um and you know i think the reason that i still count Juve as in this tie is because of that again tactical adaptiveness within um europe that if they fought the back Did They play five or three at the back um and the exciting and explosive nature of the likes of dubala and um yeah and Pogba just behind or even the control that maybe Kadir or Marquisio adds to the midfield so they're able to go toe-to-toe with this uh, Bayern Munich side and I think that's the reason that, that keeps them still in this tie not only that but I mean look at the result in the first leg it was it wasn't unpep like but to let the two goals like back that back like that I, you imagine that sort of gives uh, Juve the front foot and not only that but you know we with them going back to Bayern Munich, and I know they've only got the two goals, but if they snatch an away goal and make it interesting in that sense, then, you know, the away goals are might count uh, very importantly in this time.
1: Yeah, b- perhaps. Uh, it has to be pretty high scoring for that. But, uh, you know, Juventus has a couple of things going in their favor. I think uh, their performance at Real Madrid last season really shows that they're capable of going to a venue against a really stellar team and putting in a performance. And I think also, uh, you mentioned Diwala. Uh, I It's easy to overstate this based on how he's played this year uh compared to his talent level or his past but it's entirely possible over the course of 90 minutes on Wednesday that he's the best player on the field. Um he might not be the most talented compared to all the talents that Bayern has but the way that he has actually been delivering this year for Juventus, he might end up being the most impactful player over this match at the Allianz. And if that happens, well, you know if your team has the best player, particularly if they're an attacker, you always have a chance. So, could we see a one nothing Juve victory here after uh you know, they scored an early goal from Diabala and then they just do like Chelsea and park the bus for the last 20, 70 minutes. I mean, it's possible. I'm not going to bet on that. But uh I think if Juventus gets by Bayern here, it wouldn't be the biggest shock of my lifetime. Shock or not, myself and Kartikrish and I are going to be coming back to you midweek to talk about the results in Champions League to set the stage for Europa League, Liverpool's visit to Old Trafford and Tottenham hosting Borussia Dortmund, as well as look forward to the weekend's action in England. But until then, for everybody at the World Soccer Talk family of sites, for Nipun Chopra and Lawrence McKenna, I'm Richard Farley imploring you to enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737, Lawrence is L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, Lostcast and Nipun is Nipun Chopra7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at WorldSoccerTalk.com